Welcome to Taking Notes with NextGen Venture Partners, where we have interesting conversations with entrepreneurs and innovators in the NextGen investing ecosystem. I'm your host, Dan Mindis. We hope you enjoy the discussion. My guest today is Carter McJunkin. Carter is a venture partner with NextGen, and for nearly eight years, he was the chief operating officer of Grindr, from employee number one to exit. Grindr describes itself as the world's largest social networking app for gay, bi, trans, and queer people. Uh, and we discuss the growth of the company from the time Carter joined to its sale uh, to a Chinese buyer when it had millions of daily active users. Uh, and we also discuss how Grindr has been in the news recently as the U.S. government is forcing the sale of Grindr from that Chinese buyer uh, to a new owner because of national security concerns linked to user privacy. I think it's a really interesting and far-ranging conversation. And without further ado, here's Carter. Carter McJunkin, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's been a, we've known each other quite a while, so it's, it's uh, funny that we are coming back together in this format. That's true, that's true. And we've known each other uh, since before you joined Grindr, uh, but uh, maybe you, we could start with you sharing uh, how that happened. Well, I was finishing up business school at the University of Maryland, and I was working with you at Active Angel Investors in uh, Reston, Virginia, helping you look at deals, basically. I was trying to find a startup to get on board with. And uh, you know, I thought a good way to do that was working with uh, you know, an angel group. And so around that time, uh, I was reintroduced to a friend of mine, Joel Simkai, who had founded Grindr a little bit of a, you know, maybe a year before that. And he needed some help talking to VCs who were interested in uh, investing in his company. And so I said, sure, I'll, I'll take a look at that. Um, you know, I focused on venture and entrepreneurship in business school. And so, uh, you know, I knew, knew my way around some projections. And so I, I said, you know, take a look. And I looked at the numbers and said, oh my God, like, have you shown these to anybody? And he said, no. Um, and I said, well, don't, because I want to put my money in this company. And um, he said, I don't want to take your money, but you can talk to some other people who might uh, want to take their money. I said, fine. I'll, you know, so I started consulting to him and uh, eventually you know, came on board full-time you know, after about a year it started making uh, some good money and you know I had been in my basement in Bethesda working uh, remotely and he had, was working out of his living room in, in Hollywood and you know started making money and I said look you gotta you know, get this out of your living room you gotta hire everybody who's a, who's a consultant or a contractor make them full-time employees Let's get an office, move me out there, we'll build an executive team and we'll, we'll do it for real. And you know, moved out here to Los Angeles in 2011 and then uh, went, went from there. So you had a, a pretty good run as the chief operating officer of Grindr. Um, maybe if you could just kind of walk us through, you know, you, you already talked about how they had some pretty good traction, even with Joel working out of his living room and a bunch of contractors. But you then, you know, you moved out to LA, you built a, a real company and kind of walk us through the, the history from there. So when I moved, when we first started, I mean, I think, you know, uh, the first year that the, the company was in operation, uh, I came on maybe about a year, year into it. And so I think it made, made like a hundred thousand dollars that first year. And then I joined and it was, you know, it was a small team uh, of music contractors and, uh, you know, but, but the traction is like significant, right? So, I mean, I remember shortly after I joined, we had, I think, a million, it was like a million man celebration or something like that. And at that time, I think we were, you know, we were counting our, 
just counting by downloads, we didn't have any reliable user stats at that point, but you know, a million guys had downloaded this thing. So that was significant. And so I knew, I knew that you know, it was good traction. And so we moved, when we moved out of the uh, living room and got an office in, in Hollywood, you know, we built a team. We launched Blender shortly after that, which was the, uh, I call it, it was a straight version of Grindr, but it was you know, for everyone, gays, lesbians, straights, uh, whoever was interested. But it didn't, didn't monetize as well as, uh, as Grindr had. Uh, and so we ended up jettisoning that and, and doing a, a rev share with another company uh, called Badu that ran another dating site in uh, the UK. And so that, that was, you know, pre-Tinder, uh, of course. Uh, and, and they fixed all the things that gay men loved about Grindr, straight women hated about Blender, and then Tinder subsequently fixed. And so uh, they, they figured out uh, it's, all, it's all product that, that really you know, gets people in and, and keeps them stick, sticking around. So we got rid of Blender and then you know, continued to, we just focused on the gay side of the business and continued to, to grow until we grew out of our space and ended up having to move into another space in the building. And you know, there, there was a period of you know, expansion and contraction as far as the team goes. There was, another, there was also a period of uh, running the company on a day-to-day business in terms of cash and trying to figure out who we're going to pay today or who we're not going to pay today uh, because we never, we never raised any outside capital. So you know, Joel had hired me to talk to all these you know, venture capitalists uh, about raising money, and we, ne- we never ended up doing it uh, because we didn't need to. There was, uh, the company was making money, and we enough money that we could you know, go day to day and not have to look outside uh, to operate. In hindsight, I always wonder, is that the best decision? But you know, it got us to the point where we were able to grow the company you know, one day at a time to a significant scale. So Carter, um, you spent several years at Grinder. Looking back at that experience, and now that you're advising uh, and investing in a number of consumer-facing companies, apps, and so forth, what are the key metrics that you advise companies to look at? Well, depending on what kind of company it is, but I mean, you know, if it's an app of any sort, it's always going to be, you know, the user numbers first. You know, how many people are coming in? How many people downloaded? How many people are coming on a daily basis? How many people are coming on a monthly basis? What's the retention over the first uh, few days, the first week, the first month? How sticky is it, right? You know, people come back uh, a lot or they just come back maybe once, twice and then disappear. Are they highly engaged, right? So Grindr had, you know, had and has one of the highest engagement uh, metrics of any app I've seen. You know, I think people use it an hour or more a day. So you look at those kind of numbers and you say, oh, okay, that's, that's significant, right? People just, they, they're not putting this down, they're coming back and making it part of their life. And I think when you see that in a company, it says a lot. Now, you know, to entrepreneurs who are building companies, there's no secret to do that. It's a lot of times it's just luck, but it is a lot of making and product tweaks. Some that are known, some that are uh, not as obvious. But when, when, you, when you make the right ones, you'll know because the, the metrics you know, go through the roof. Yeah, that's always one of the benefits is real-time feedback. When you're talking about a consumer app, you can know pretty quickly whether or not what you did makes sense. So Grindr is an ad-supported business, right? That, that's how you monetize it. How you look at those kinds of businesses today, you know, do you, you know, do you think that that's a, an attractive business model or do you think that sort of the recurring revenue, you know, your customers paying you approach, which is probably more in favor, uh, is something that you'd steer companies towards? Well, Grindr is actually unique in that it had both ad, ad revenue as well as subscription revenue. 
So not all dating sites have this. I think some more now than before, but we were one of the first ones that made a good amount of money on ads, uh, but also had a premium version of the product that um, we sold you know, subscription on as well. So the free version was ad supported and then the paid version obviously uh, had, had a big subscriber base. You know, and both those are you know, good ways to run a business. It takes somewhat of a different focus. You need a lot of engagement for an ad supported model, right? You need a lot of people and you need a lot of time in the app. Subscription, obviously, you know, if the product itself has a lot of value, then people are willing to pay for that, right? So, you know, you know especially in a dating app or any, any sort of social network, if you think about if it, you know, costs you know, 15 bucks a month just to go out, I mean, $15 just to go out to a bar and get a drink, uh, you know, what's, what's $15 a month or, you know, $30 a month, right? So people, I think people have really wrapped their heads around paying that amount of money for subscription services. On the ad side, I think, you know, there's a lot of different, it's tough. You know, a lot of, you know, the programmatic biz, it's a race to the bottom. On the other hand, there is some challenge, at least, you know, for Grindr, you know, because of, you know, it's, it's a gay app. Some advertisers have problems with content, and so they won't buy programmatically. Uh, so we built a sales force that we you know, did direct sales and, and sort of worked on brand partnerships that you know, had a lot of value. And I, I think that was, a, that was a good angle because we became basically the one place where you could reach gay men everywhere in the world, right? So it's, and it's a attractive market that advertisers, uh, you know, when we started, weren't in love with, but over time, you know, I think, you know, 10 years later, now a lot, most, I think a lot of brands are comfortable with it or, or actively seeking you know, the gay audience. And so we were you know, well positioned to be, you know, the, the one-stop shop for, for reaching that customer. Yeah. So on the advertising supported question, it sounds like that worked for Grindr, both because you had, frankly, unbelievable engagement in, and and in the app and, and time spent there as well as a demographic that was interesting to advertisers and nicely targeted. So it sounds like just you were well positioned in that regard. Yeah, and I, I don't know that everyone would be. It, it just depends on the, on the content itself. You know, if, if it's a niche product, you know, I'm thinking if you, you know, gamers or something like this, and you know, obviously, uh, you know, if you're a gaming company and you're trying to reach gamers, uh, you're, you're gonna pay a premium for that. But if you have a niche product, it's easier to sell advertising space for your, you know, for your demographic. But at the same time, if you're too niche, you're not going to have enough people. <laughs> so uh, it's a, it's sort of a catch me to that. Carter, uh, speaking of enough people, uh, you mentioned that uh, you moved from the U.S. to international. Uh, talk about uh, how that went at Grinder. Basically overnight and, and very quickly. The nice thing about launching on Apple uh, or on iTunes uh, back in you know '09 or whatever is that you could immediately launch everywhere you know every country in the world, and it sort of took off without any marketing uh, very quickly internationally, and we didn't really know why, and you know frankly didn't care. It was it was great. Uh, you know UK, London became one of our biggest cities for a time. Uh, you know there was a big contention Australia. Australians love Grindr from a very, you know, very early on. And we, used, we would find over time, because we didn't really spend any money on marketing, other than, you know, in the beginning going out, right, I think people, you know, we had a, a team of, of guys who would just go out to gay bars and clubs and like hand out flyers and tell people to download it. It caught on and, and word of mouth really spread the, the news about it. And so we didn't really do any paid advertising. Uh, what we found is that there would be cultural moments that would sort of spark new downloads in certain cities. So I remember, you know, I think it was like 2016 or 17, 
there was a gay pride event somewhere in India, maybe New Delhi or something. And suddenly overnight, we had another 150,000 users and it just blew up. So suddenly we became a major, major, major presence in India. And so that, that happened consistently uh, whenever there was some critical mass uh, within any city in any country. Carter, did you face meaningful competition while you were there? Yes and no. I, you know, geographically, absolutely. So in China, there's an app called Blued that took off. We existed in China, but the servers are all uh, in the U.S. And so uh, you know, between the, the firewalls and the you know, screening of uh, data, it doesn't work that well. So there was, there was a, a gap in the market in China and uh, this company Blue came in and did a great job of um, you know, creating an app that served uh, you know, the local Chinese needs. And with the population of China being what it is, it became massive in scale. So we never really competed there in the first place. And uh, you know, I, I would say at this point, you know, they own that market. There were some other apps. So the, the, you know, Grindr was sort of the app to serve the broadest gay audience. But there were also other niche apps like Scruff, which is focused a little more on the, the, the less clean cut guy, beards and whatnot. Growler, which focused on the bear audience. But you know, for the most part, Grinder was and continues to be the market leader just because uh, if you're looking to meet people, you want to go to the place that has the most people. And Grinder has been consistently that, that app. Carter, you mentioned uh, hitting the 1 million downloads and, and celebrating that moment. Where did things stand uh, on your key metrics when the company was sold? So I left in, I think, uh, beginning of 2018. We were doing around two to three million daily active users or something like that. So we, we stopped, we, long before we'd stopped counting downloads and concerned more about how many people are coming to the, to the app uh, and opening it up on a daily basis. I'm not sure what the user numbers are now, but I'm sure they're even more significant as they've added more people internationally. And then, you know, as I said, we did like 100,000 that first year I was there. And then I think when I left in revenue, did around, this is public, we did around 70 million. And can you talk about the path to selling the company? So Joel and I, at about 2015 or so, we really burnt out. You know, we had been running the company for a few years. Neither of us are technologists. You know, I'm a generalist. He's more of an entrepreneurial general, generalist, right? So he's, he's, he's a deep in the weeds, execute kind of guy. You know, ask people, other people to do things. Uh, I'm more of a big picture guy. But neither of us uh, have a very deep technical background. So, you know, we relied heavily on our you know, heads of engineering to, you know, set us straight. And we had tons of technical debt from the beginning because... You have to remember when we first created this app, no one had ever built an app for a mobile device before, basically. Uh, at least there were very few engineers at the time who had experience in you know, mobile apps because you know, Joel launched this thing in 2009, the iPhone came out in 2008. So, you know, and I, I don't think he launched it until after the second generation iPhone, which had GPS. So really, you know, we found people to build the app when, you know, who were just eager to work on a mobile app project uh, because no one was really doing it. And so there's a lot of mistakes that were made that we didn't, uh, didn't anticipate. One, we didn't anticipate how much scale we were going to get in terms of the number of guys who were going to download and get on this app daily and, and the engagement, right? So you know, if you've got people using it an hour a day, that is a lot of 
our servers were, were under a lot of strain, right? And consistently we, we were breaking, you know, we, we, we killed a lot of vendors um, <laughs> who just basically couldn't keep up with our uh, you know, traffic, right? So, you know, they'd say, hey, we can handle this aspect of your uh, service for you and we would you know, sign them up and they would just get blown out uh, in the first few days and, and, and give up. So there was a lot of technical issues that we had to deal with on, on the scale and it was hard to hire, right? So we were startup, they were tricky from a, you know, a hiring standpoint until we sort of built the culture into a company that people really wanted to work for. And so it was a challenge to, to find people. And so we were sort of bur burnt out after a while and we wanted to uh, sell the business. And so we, you know, we hired a bank, did a roadshow, you know, we pitched, pinched, uh, you, know, a number, you know, two dozen or so companies in private equity firms, et cetera. And, you know, two things happened during that time. One is we got excited about the business again. Because we, you know, as part of the process for selling company, you come up with a storyline, you build a deck, and you, know, you practice your pitch. Well, you know, we kind of drank our own Kool-Aid, and we're like, hey, this is kind of a cool business, and, you know, uh, we'd like to keep doing it. And then the second thing that happened is we I made a number of key executive hires that uh, in engineering, in marketing, in product, that really attracted a lot of other great talent to the company. They're very good at their jobs. Uh, and suddenly everything started working smoothly. We were making progress and it was fun to, you know, fun to work again. And so you know, we really got excited about the business again. We're like, hey, let's, let's stick around and, and not sell the business. And so we decided, hey, let, you know, maybe we should just do, you know, sell a minority and not do a majority or sell the whole thing. Uh, but by that time we were too far into the process and um, the only deals we had were uh, majority. And so we, we chose the one that had you know, the best uh, price, of course, but then also allowed us to stick, uh, stick around, continue to manage the business for a couple more years. Uh, and that was Beijing Kunlun. And so we sold to them and then uh, they purchased the rest of the company uh, two years later. We sold 60% in the first uh, transaction and then two years later sold the remaining 40%. Grinder has been in the news recently for reasons that you probably you know, wouldn't have anticipated uh, when you joined or, or when you sold it to the uh, Chinese-based buyer. But there's something called the Committee on Foreign Investments, sort of a, a government entity that looks at foreign ownership of U.S.-based companies and can prevent or, or sort of unwind foreign ownership. And that's basically what they're doing right now with Grindr. So it looks like, you know, the U.S. government is sort of for uh, the sale of Grinder from this uh, Chinese company to, uh, to a third party. Any thoughts on uh, that development? Yeah, I, I don't really know that much more about it than what we've read in the papers. So I don't know what particular issues that CFIUS have with Kale owning the company. But I'm, I'm pretty surprised that they were forcing the sale. I've heard stories about them or read about uh, CFIUS blocking deals as they happen but not three years after a transaction closes. So, I mean, I think that's pretty surprising and I, I don't know how precedent that is. But I would say, you know, there's two things that are somewhat concerning here. One is that if it is a, a privacy issue that the US government's concerned about, I'm a, bit, I'm a bit skeptical that, you know, just having the owners be anything other than Chinese is gonna solve the issue. You know, especially when it comes to, I saw some mention of military assets getting compromised or something like that. You know, you know, state hackers are good, no matter what country they're from. And, and I always assume that they could get into Facebook, Google, Grindr, Tinder, whatever they wanted, if they wanted to. And 
I, I wouldn't assume that anyone's data is safe in that regard just because uh, who owns it. You know, if someone's being targeted, the best defense is just not to use those services. Secondly, from an investment ecosystem perspective, if CFIUS or the U.S. government's not preventing Chinese investors or, you know, any uh, investors that are from countries with questionable U.S. ally status from buying U.S. companies, uh, U.S. companies that have access to sensitive user data, whatever, you know, whatever that means, it's going to severely impact the ability of startups in the U.S. from accessing foreign capital. It's arguable that, you know, no U.S. tech company is going to be able to, you know, be on the market for any foreign investment as that trend continues, right? So uh, it's just a matter of, you know, what they decide to expand the definition of sensitive user data to. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, Carter. I mean, what I read in the press was at least speculation was that the concern was that the Chinese government could, you know, learn about activities that were taking place on Grindr and blackmail, right? You know, folks in sort of the national security environment was saying, hey, we're going we're gonna to leak this, these pictures or this activity and actually spy better on the U.S. But that's a really interesting point that, hey, they can always, <laughs> they can always hack these services. They don't need to own them. Uh, <laughs> they might already be, they might already be there. Yeah, exactly. And to what degree was privacy an issue when you were uh, managing Grindr? I mean, privacy was always an issue. I mean, you know, partially just from the standpoint of, hey, you're dealing with a customer and an audience and user-based that is already in a number of countries uh, you know, persecuted just for, for being who they are. In a number of countries, there are no protections. You know, against their livelihood, you know, there's personal safety and things like that. So we had to take measures to counteract even state actors in certain countries uh, that we had been using. We heard of stories about, you know, governments using Grindr to find gay men and lock them up, right? Obviously not a good situation and nothing we want to be uh, for the product to be used uh, in such a way. So, you know, we had to do things like uh, we, had, we had something called uh, bad neighborhoods, right? So these were countries where we, we knew these bad things were happening or even just where, you know, there was a high incidence of, uh, you know, violence against LGBT people. We would turn off the location feature uh, in those areas. So, you, you know, you couldn't even have a choice to turn it on or off. It was just by default off and you couldn't turn it on just because you, you can't assume that everyone's going to take their personal safety into account. But aside from that, you know, there was a lot of work done in making sure, you know, we had a whole team called Authenticity that was focused on making sure that users are real, that there isn't a lot of spam, that there aren't people hacking the system. And it's a constant struggle. I mean, one of my you know, criticisms of you know, all social networks is that from a user standpoint, it, it's very hard if the company, you know, keep your, your, your personal user data safe, even if the company has your interests at heart. And if they don't, then even, even it's even more difficult, right? Because it's an arms race. I mean, you're dealing with uh, bad actors who are trying to hack the system, to take advantage of it, to manipulate others. And you're constantly at battle with those people. Um, and so it, it's, it's, it's always a struggle. Carter, on that happy note, I think we'll bring this to a close. I really appreciate spending some time today. Thanks so much. Thank you. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to Taking Notes with Next Gen Venture Partners. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. To learn more about us or to hear all of our past podcasts, please go to nextgenvp.com. And now for some important disclaimers. 
The information contained in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to purchase any securities. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Any performance or projections contained herein may be significantly affected by future events. Any opinions, assumptions, assessments, statements, or the like regarding future events or which are forward-looking constitute only subjective views and beliefs, should not be relied on, and are subject to change due to a variety of factors, including fluctuating market conditions and economic factors.